Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I saw that I must die if I continued the opium. I determined, therefore, if that should be required, to die in throwing it off. How much I was at that time taking, I cannot say. I apprehend, however, that I took it very irregularly, and that I varied from about fifty or sixty grains to a hundred and fifty a day. My first task was to reduce it to forty, to thirty, and as fast as I could, to twelve grains. I triumphed. But think not, reader, that therefore my sufferings were ended. Hello and welcome to TLS Voices, an occasional series of readings brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Catherine Morris, and the subject of this episode is the pioneering author of Confessions of an Opium Eater, Thomas de Quincey, who is also the subject of Guilty Thing, a new biography by Francis Wilson, which is reviewed in this week's TLS. De Quincey was born in Manchester in 1785, and as a teenager fell under the influence of Wordsworth and Coleridge's lyrical ballads. As Francis Wilson shows, the experience of reading this book had a profound effect on de Quincey, but it was also to have an effect, eventually, on the two poets themselves. The younger man would insinuate his way into their lives, and for some years lived in Wordsworth's old home in the Lake District, Dove Cottage. As our reviewer Kelly Grovier points out, De Quincey had a proclivity for interposing himself into the psychodramas of Wordsworth and Coleridge, whether they wanted him there or not. But as a writer, he created his own distinct claim to lasting fame in the form of his extraordinary confessions. Published anonymously in 1821, the book made him famous once the identity of its author emerged, and controversial too. Some thought he should have said more about opium's negative consequences and dwelt less on its irresistible pleasures. Here is the first encounter with the drug in 1804, as he recalled it many years later. From an early age I had been accustomed to wash my head in cold water at least once a day. Being suddenly seized with toothache, I attributed it to some relaxation caused by an accidental intermission of that practice, 
jumped out of bed, plunged my head into a basin of cold water, and with hair thus wetted, went to sleep. The next morning, as I need hardly say, I awoke with excruciating rheumatic pains of the head and face, from which I had hardly any respite for about twenty days. On the twenty-first day, I think it was, and on a Sunday, I went out into the streets rather to run away, if possible, from my torments, than with any distinct purpose. By accident, I met a college acquaintance who recommended opium. Opium. Dread agent of unimaginable pleasure and pain. I had heard of it as I had heard of manna, or of ambrosia, but no further. How unmeaning a sound was it at that time! What solemn chords does it now strike upon my heart? What heart-quaking vibrations of sad and happy remembrances! Reverting for a moment to these, I feel a mystic importance attached to the minutest circumstances connected with the place and the time and the man, if man he was, that first laid open to me the paradise of opium-eaters. It was a Sunday afternoon, wet and cheerless, and a duller spectacle this earth of ours has not to show than a rainy Sunday in London. My road homewards lay through Oxford Street, and near the stately pantheon, as Mr. Wordsworth has obligingly called it, I saw a druggist's shop. The druggist, unconscious minister of celestial pleasures, as if in sympathy with the rainy Sunday, looked dull and stupid, just as any mortal druggist might be expected to look on a Sunday, and when I asked for the tincture of opium, he gave it to me as any other man might do, and furthermore, out of my shilling, returned me what seemed to be real copper half-pence, taken out of a real wooden drawer. Nevertheless, in spite of such indications of humanity, he has ever since existed in my mind as the beatific vision of an immortal druggist, sent down to earth on a special mission to myself. And it confirms me in this way of considering him, that when I next came up to London, I sought him near the stately pantheon and found him not. And thus to me, who knew not his name, if indeed he had one, he seemed rather to have vanished from Oxford Street than to have removed in any bodily fashion. The reader may choose to think of him as possibly no more than a sublunary druggist. It may be so, but my faith is better. I believe him to have evanesced or evaporated." So unwillingly would I connect any mortal remembrances with that hour and place and creature that first brought me acquainted with the celestial drug. Arrived at my lodgings, it may be supposed that I lost not a moment in taking the quantity prescribed. I was necessarily ignorant of the whole art and mystery of opium-taking, and what I took, I took under every disadvantage. But I took it, and in an hour... Oh heavens, what a revulsion, what an upheaving from its lowest depths of inner spirit, what an apocalypse of the world within me, that my pains had vanished was now a trifle in my eyes. This negative effect was swallowed up in the immensity of those positive effects which had opened before me, in the abyss of divine enjoyment thus suddenly revealed. Here was a panacea, a pharmacon, for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness about which philosophers had disputed for so many ages, at once discovered. Happiness might now be bought for a penny, 
and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be had corked up in a pint bottle, and peace of mind could be sent down in gallons by the mail coach. De Quincey was at pains to distinguish the opium addict's experience from that of the drunk. Laudanum could intoxicate in the same way that drink did, yes, because it contained opium mixed with alcohol. But crude opium had a completely different effect on him. The pleasure given by wine is always mounting and tending to a crisis, after which it declines. That from opium, when once generated, is stationary for eight or ten hours. The first, to borrow a technical distinction from medicine, is a case of acute. The second, the chronic pleasure. The one is a flame, the other a steady and equable glow. But the main distinction lies in this, that whereas wine disorders the mental faculties, opium, on the contrary, if taken in a proper manner, introduces amongst them the most exquisite order, legislation and harmony. Wine robs a man of his self-possession. Opium greatly invigorates it. Despite its title, Confessions of an Opium Eater does not solely concern itself with de Quincey's happy derangement of his own senses. It tells of his childhood and of a young prostitute he befriended but lost forever because he never asked for her surname. It also captures a certain London atmosphere superbly in its descriptions of nights at the opera and playing the flaneur on a Saturday night. And despite the criticisms at the time about de Quincey's emphasis on pleasure rather than pain, there is plenty in his confessions about what his many years of addiction had done to him, both mentally and physically. The word dream often recurs in the course of a narrative concerned with inward things in its own way as much as Wordsworth was in his autobiographical poetry. The dream commenced with a music which now I often heard in dreams, a music of preparation and of awakening suspense, a music like the opening of the coronation anthem and which, like that, gave the feeling of a vast march, of infinite cavalcades filing off and the tread of innumerable armies. The morning was come of a mighty day, a day of crisis and of final hope for human nature, then suffering some mysterious eclipse and labouring in some dread extremity. Somewhere I knew not where, somehow I knew not how, by some beings I knew not whom, a battle, a strife, an agony was conducting, was evolving like a great drama or piece of music, with which my sympathy was the more insupportable from my confusion as to its place, its cause, its nature, and its possible issue. I, as is usual in dreams, whereof necessity we make ourselves central to every movement, had the power, and yet had not the power, to decide it. I had the power if I could raise myself to will it, and yet again had not the power, for the weight of twenty Atlantics was upon me, or the oppression of inexpiable guilt. Deeper than ever plummet sounded, I lay inactive. Then, like a chorus, the passion deepened. Some greater interest was at stake, some mightier cause than ever yet the sword had pleaded or trumpet had proclaimed. Then came sudden alarms, hurryings to and fro, trepidations of innumerable fugitives. I knew not whether from the good cause or the bad, darkness and lights, tempest and human faces, and at last, with the sense that all was lost, female forms, and the features that were worth all the world to me, 
and but a moment aloud, and clasped hands and heartbreaking partings and then everlasting farewells. And with a sigh such as the caves of hell sighed when the incestuous mother uttered the abhorred name of death, the sound was reverberated, everlasting farewells, and again and yet again reverberated, everlasting farewells, and I awoke in struggles and cried aloud, I will sleep no more. Eventually, de Quincey kicked the habit, and he went on to write many other books and essays, including a volume entitled Recollections of the Lake Poets. But opium had defined him as a person and a writer. It's strange to think that we owe his most extraordinary literary work to a bout of toothache. Opium had long ceased to found its empire on spells of pleasure. It was solely by the tortures connected with the attempts to abjure it that it kept its hold. Yet as other tortures, no less it may be thought, attended the non-abjuration of such a tyrant, a choice only of evils was left, and that might as well have been adopted which, however terrific in itself, held out a prospect of final restoration to happiness. This appears true, but good logic gave the author no strength to act upon it. However, a crisis arrived for the author's life, and a crisis for other objects still dearer to him, and which will always be far dearer to him than his life, even now that it is again a happy one. I thought that I must die if I continued the opium. I determined, therefore, if that should be required, to die in throwing it off. How much I was at that time taking I cannot say, for the opium which I used had been purchased for me by a friend who afterwards refused to let me pay him, so that I could not ascertain even what quantity I had used within the year. I apprehend, however, that I took it very irregularly, and that I varied from about fifty or sixty grains to a hundred and fifty a day. My first task was to reduce it to forty, to thirty, and as fast as I could, to twelve grains. I triumphed. But think not, reader, that therefore my sufferings were ended, nor think of me as one sitting in a dejected state. Think of me as one, even when four months had passed, still agitated, writhing, throbbing, palpitating, shattered. During the whole period of diminishing the opium, I had the torments of a man passing out of one mode of existence into another. The issue was not death, but a sort of physical regeneration. And I may add that ever since, at intervals, I have had a restoration of more than youthful spirits, though under the pressure of difficulties, which in a less happy state of mind I should have called misfortunes. One memorial of my former condition still remains. My dreams are not yet perfectly calm. The dread swell and agitation of the storm have not wholly subsided. The legions that encamped in them are drawing off, but not all departed. My sleep is still tumultuous, and like the gate of paradise to our first parents when looking back from afar, it is still in the tremendous line of Milton, with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. You can read more about Thomas de Quincey and Francis Wilson's new biography of him in this week's TLS. 
The issue also contains an exclusive extract from the first English translation of Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, the first English translation of an essay by Vladimir Nabokov, and all the latest reviews of new novels, as well as books about history, art, travel and much more. To find out more about the TLS, and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print and via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, life in every word. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.